Welcome to the first episode of Commentary. This week's episode was recorded in 1998 for the DVD release of one of the most iconic romantic comedies of the 90s, You've Got Mail. Our guests today are co-writer and director Nora Ephron and producer Lauren Schuler-Donner. And it's a great commentary. The two filmmakers have a really specific director-producer rapport that some people might recognize. And Nora Ephron is one of my favorite oversharers. So she drops a lot of really interesting, funny stories about her life, her career, her family, and sometimes also about this movie. This was her fifth film as director, her fourth of six feature film collaborations with her sister, writer Delia Ephron. And it's the third pairing of Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, who are both so sweet in the movie, despite him crushing her business and then lying and manipulating her into developing feelings for him. The filmmakers unfortunately don't go into that particular problem with the narrative, but they do go into a lot of great anecdotes about the making of the movie, including the origins of this version of the story, how they cast it, what food they ate while making it, what it was like working with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan for the second time, and of course, as always, Miss Efren sprinkles in a handful of nostalgic tales of New York City, which she mentions they worked really hard to paint as a small town in the movie. It's a very listenable episode, so you can take this one wherever with you, but if you're streaming the movie at home, go to the very beginning and wait for the sound to sync it up. Here are co-writer-director Nora Ephron and producer Lauren Schuler-Donner in 1998 for You've Got Mail. I'm Lauren Schuler Donner. I'm the producer of You've Got Mail. I'm Nora Efren. I'm the director and co-writer and co-producer. And these are the opening credits. Which were done by Walter Bernard, uh, Milton Glaser, and Mirko Ehrlich. And in the tradition of most opening credits, they took longer to do than the entire movie. And this moment when the wireframe reveals itself is when, is what we started out with when we were working with Walter and Milton on this idea that had kind of started out in the script and then they expanded it to put the entire solar system in and the idea of the planet which has only one land mass on it, Manhattan, which is of course the way many of us see the world. It's all Steinberg point of view. Yeah. <laughs> this is the Upper West Side, which we're clicking on right there. That That's is 72nd and Broadway. It used to be called Needle Park. But now in our new upscale, fabulous, Giuliani-ruled New York, it's called Verdi Square. And by the way, there's a scene shot there. You'll see when Meg and Tom cross each other. It's in Verdi Square. And then later on, where we have a fair, a street fair, that's also Verdi Square. Now watch the runner on the left. Coming right out of that building... and goes from computer to real life. So you have the 
reality of the movie established before it even begins, which is a little cyberspace, a little reality, and a little magic. Now this shot here was a fascinating shot because it combined um, a move from the exterior of Meg's building and a move that from an exterior that was built on stage, an enormous platform pushed by many, many men. At this moment, when the camera clears, that wall of the building broke open on the soundstage, and a platform with the camera and about 10 technicians came into the room and came around the room and landed on Meg. Here she is. This is amazing. Listen to this. The, the entire workforce of the state of Virginia had to have... The cut in that scene, by the way, is a dissolve that's made as the camera goes through the trees on the street. And it's made by a, a dissolve. And actually, Lubitsch did something like it in one of his movies using much less technology. And therefore, of course, we knew that, and it was a little homage to him. <laughs> Sushi. This set was built. Bye. This interior set was built, um, and uh, in the Teaneck Armory in New Jersey. And this is built up on a platform so that we have a, a view as though we were up in her apartment. This floor plan of the apartment was started by me and sort of fixed perfectly by our production designer, Dan Davis. It's sort of based on an apartment I used to live in. And a very classic New York floor through with a kitchen that sticks out in a little extension off the back of it. And Dan put the bathroom in the middle and the bay window and all sorts of things that gave it a lot of extra space. That's a funny story about her name, Shop Girl, because that was her name in the script. And um, as you probably know, you write things in the script, and then when you go to really put it on the film, you have many different issues to deal with. In this case, it was a legal one because there was a woman who had the name Shop Girl, and we had to go to AOL. And AOL had to then convince her that she would have so many hits on her name that she would be very sorry to keep the name Shop Girl. And she finally... She actually worked in an auto body shop, I think. She didn't own a bookstore, but... Sleeping on a large green pillow the size of an inner tube. Don't you love so this is one of our dogs. Should we tell, tell them about all the dogs? Well, there are many dogs. Yeah, there are many dogs. That's Clovis. I, I can't remember which dog it was. Clovis, Bonnie, and a few other stand-ins. On the other hand, this not knowing has its charms. Julie Dirk, who uh, heads up my development company, came upon Shopper on the Corner and uh, said to me, how about Shopper on the Corner, which I had seen years and years ago and remembered loving, but you know, hadn't seen in so many years. Took a look at it, I took a look at it, and immediately fell in love with it all over again. The problem was, this is in 1994, by the way, the problem was is that they wrote letters to each other. And they were members of a, like a Miss Lonely Hearts Club. Yes, the original movie took place in Budapest, Budapest. where at the, about the turn of the century, where amazingly, amazingly, Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan were living in Budapest. Jimmy Stewart, without changing one hair on his head. Um, and every once in a while, they would refer to it being Budapest or a Hungarian food, and otherwise you had no idea that you were in Budapest. And, and Ernst Lubitsch, the great 
Ernst Lubitsch directed it, and I and I suspect I should check this, but I suspect that, you know, he had come from Hungary along with a lot of Hungarian refugees before World War II, and kind of brought with him not a trunk but a kind of treasure trove of Middle European. Um, schmaltzy, fabulous stories, and yeah, yeah. and he began making them one after another after another, and they're kind of amazing to look at now because they all take place in Budapest. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And this was, in fact, called Parfumery. It was based on the screenplay. It was based on a play called Parfumery, which took place in a perfume store. We're already in the middle of a conversation. You see here the beginning of what we tried to do in this, which is to be on the computers as little as possible, particularly in the early sections of the movie, because we knew that eventually we were going to get to a point in the movie where we really had to be listening to these letters. So we wanted to start off without terrifying people that they were going to be trapped forever watching computers during this movie. It was our, it was our biggest uh, fear, actually, was, that, was how, do we, how do we have our actors behind computers and still make it compelling? Well, the first solution was Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, because they're so such incredible actors, and they draw you in as though they are sitting and talking to the person right in front of them. Also, if you watch, it's just cut beautifully so that we're now not this, on the computer too long. Just not to interrupt you, but that thing you just saw of that man leaving boxes of those bags of bread in front of the restaurants is one of the main things I was trying to do to show the small town, little shops opening, little shop owners, and that people actually deliver bags of bread in New York to unopened restaurants and leave them on the streets. I think... People in Iowa think that if you did something like that, gangs of wild youths would swoop down and steal them. This is Verdi Square again. Remember when the yeah. computer, we clicked on this. And this actually we shot in the summertime, and the leaves were green, and we computer changed them to autumn leaves. The extra who is playing the florist is pregnant. We put a little pad in her tummy, and one of the things you will see later in the movie is when Meg is buying flowers at that florist, there's a little sign in the window that says, it's a girl. This was one of our little ideas to sell the idea of New York as a small town. Now this is this scene um, we shot before our set was finished, and it's in the old women's Barneys at the corner of 17th Street and 7th Avenue. And it went bankrupt, we were lucky. We were lucky because we yeah. had to look all over for a building large enough to build this mega bookstore. Um, and what we did is we shot it in sequence, and we built our bookstore and filmed on screen in sequence building the bookstore. Patricia's amazing. Patricia makes coffee. This is one of the first scenes we shot. We should announce ourselves to the neighbors. Let them know. Here we come. Well, no, this is up the west side, man. We might as well tell them we're opening a crack house. They're going to hate us. As soon as they hear, they're going to be lining up to, to pick at the, the big, big bad chain store. store that's out to destroy everything they hold dear. Yeah. Do you know what? We are going to seduce them. We're going to seduce them with our square footage and our discounts and our deep armchairs and our cappuccino. cappuccino. That's right. They're going to hate us at the beginning, but, but we'll get, get them in the air. <laughs> and you know why? Why? Because we're going to sell them cheap books and legal addictive stimulants. Mm -hmm. 
That actually is a line she books in Legal Addictive Stimulants is a line of Tom Hanks's. And he began working on that line when we did Sleepless in Seattle together because, like all of us, he became hooked on Starbucks coffee and couldn't believe that someone hadn't had the idea earlier to go into legal addictive stimulants. Now, this shop um, in real life is... um It's one of the great amalgams of New York life. It is a cheese and antique store. There aren't too many of them. It's on West 69th Street. And um, interestingly, it is in the exact space where one of my biggest career breaks came when I was 22 years old. But that's another story. It's true. What is it? What was it? It was the office of Monocle Magazine, which was run by Victor Navasky, who is now the editor of The Nation and who is the person that Greg Kinnear's character is named after in this movie. How's that for a weird little roundy round? Anyway, the outside of the shop was on West 69th. The inside was built at Chelsea Piers, this little fantasy bookstore. And it's so lovely. Nothing. It was semi-modeled on a bookstore called Books of Wonder, which is a great children's bookstore on 18th Street, semi-modeled on the Corner Bookstore, which is at 93rd and Madison, and semi-modeled on that fantasy bookstore that we all have in our brains if we love books. And it's got a certain amount of already, you can see it giving in to modern life because it carries the stuffed animals. It's not merely a bookstore. It's It's got some stuff that's all tied into books, but it's nonetheless not a completely pure episode in book selling, as none of them are anymore. But you do feel the heritage of the bookstore. You do feel in looking around that it was her mother's bookstore. You see the the molding, the floors, the drawings on the walls, and you feel its history. Behind, um, right there is the little poster of Eloise from the book, the famous book Eloise, which was actually the big bestseller. I'm sure everyone will be fascinated by this, the year I worked at the bookstore when I was 15 years old. But you do get a sense if they've got that picture. Already you can see they've probably, this store has been in business for a while. And again, what we're trying to do here as we bring in one person after another is show this little family that live in this bookstore and know all these things about one another, spend all this time together. There's Bertie, Jean Stapleton, who we always thought had worked with Meg's mother, the character Meg is playing, had worked with her, had been the bookkeeper at the store for, you know, 30, 40 years. And, you know, this is meant to be that scene called, you know, it's the still pond just before the pebble gets dropped into it and the movie really begins. It's when you see Everything's so peaceful here. Everything's so quiet. What could ever go wrong in this little paradise? Well, here it is. Here it is. And, of course, just as that store feels like 
like some kind of fantasy, almost not even in the city. It's so quiet in there. We kept the noise, the street noise, very quiet in that store so that you would really get a sense that you'd come off the street into a place where books were God. Here we have an office, Tom Hanks's father's office, played by Dabney Coleman, brilliantly, I think, that is so obviously New York money. You don't really see, there are some books in it, but it is all about possessions and money and sleek um, stainless steel and, and synthetic fabrics and all the things that, that are basically not our story. And here's the model of the bookstore that we just saw wrapped in paper on the street. We're also going to have a section dedicated just to writers who've lived on the west side. It was fairly clear to us that we should set the movie in New York City because that's where the most fierce of the bookstore wars have been playing out. There are many cities where a small bookstore can survive against a big bookstore. But in New York, the rents are so high that it's very difficult. And we were living on the Upper West Side, Delia and I, and we had watched one bookstore after another just be put out of business by larger bookstores. In fact, the first two bookstores in our neighborhood that went out of business went out not because of a big megastore like the one in the movie, but because of a slightly larger independent bookstore, which then was put out of business when the megastore opened and everyone went, oh, this is so sad, having forgotten that that it too had affected smaller bookstores. I also like the, the, the poetic irony that in the Upper West Side, where the movie takes place, is where most, or where many, many novelists live, have lived, and probably will continue to live. decorating at Caesar's Jim Mazzola, our brilliant prop man, worked for months on this butterfly, and it's done with three shots. He knew he could get real butterflies to do things, and he knew all about how you do this, so that when you cut from that wide shot in the subway to the butterfly going past Meg, that is one of Jim Mazzola's real butterflies, which he started out holding three feet from Meg, let it go, and we did about 14 different butterflies, and three of them actually went right past her face quite brilliantly. So her look of marvel is And real. how did we get that butterfly to go out the door? It's very simple. They go out the door because they see the light in the subway station, and they want to go toward it. And here we are at Starbucks. Uh, this is a Starbucks at 81st and Broadway, and they both, of course, go to this Starbucks every morning without knowing. And this little riff he does is the kind of thing that I love doing in movies, where you can just sort of pop a tiny, tiny little essay right into a movie and pass it off as dialogue. Um, sort of makes me feel connected to my roots as a journalist and an essayist, which I used to be. We love the music, too. Just every once in a while, pay attention to because George Fenton is such a brilliant composer and captured the music, the, the music and the mood and everything we wanted to convey through the music. 
And here, of course, is that great moment where the music tells you that something has come to an end and something else is going to begin. Trouble. Trouble in paradise. That is what we are seeing here. And we're seeing, of course, you know, Kathleen Kelly, Meg Ryan, absolutely in denial about what any of this is going to mean. This is Barney Greengrass, the great New York appetizing store. Barney Greengrass, the Sturgeon King. And um, when we cut to Gene, you will see in the background, that is Mr. Greengrass himself. And right there, that man right behind her. And that crunch that Gene makes is my favorite time sound crunch that goes right into this scene with Meg unwrapping the flowers and you hear... It's just a wonderful way to end a scene is with that little sound of that crunch. Now, of course, we'd already started establishing that Greg Kinnear is playing a character who is a Luddite, a man who cannot stand technology and technological advance. And here is the absolute symbol of it for writers, the refusal to use a computer, uh, the insistence on typewriters, the pathological need to accumulate huge numbers of them just in case they become, you know, like snail darters and, and there are no more of them. I'm just wondering, I'm wondering about my work. And, you know, this is a very important moment in the movie. This is the moment when you see that this very smart guy, this very smart, very attractive guy, is not listening to her. And this is the reason why she is so drawn to this NY152 on the Internet. Um, He listens. This is one of the great illusions of email, of course, that we all have, is that people are actually listening to what we're saying to them instead of just glancing over it and throwing it out. You know, one thing I forgot to mention earlier is when Tom, Tom comes out of his building, you see the sign on the canopy that says 152 Riverside Drive. That's the only moment in the movie, and it lasts just a second, that you see NY152. And this is so wonderful because now she's reaching out, as Nora said, to somebody who she thinks is listening. It's what turns her to him more. And I love the music. I don't really want an answer. I just want to send this cosmic question out into the void. So, this is the music is the first you hear of the love theme that will come back over and over in the movie. Uh, 1994, I had just gotten on the internet myself. It was a very small internet community at that time, but I was fascinated by it and had gone in and out of chat rooms. And as I watched it and I started thinking this won't work because it's too old-fashioned and nobody writes letters, how can we update it? Ba-boom. Internet. I realized that it would, it would be perfect. Anybody who was on the internet at that time realized it was going to be enormous. So therefore we went back to Turner and we said, we want to make one of your movies, here's how we want to update it. 
They said, great, and uh, we started. Now the next thought was, how do we match a director in the caliber of Ernst Lubitsch, who was one of our greatest romantic comedy directors of all time? And, so um, the answer was obviously to go to me. Yes, the answer yeah. was to go to Nora Ephron. Exactly. <laughs> right. Really? Let's hear it. Excellent. Excellent. You know, I've got this One of the great things that Tom always does for you when you're directing him and you don't have to ask him to do it or think of it yourself because he's so smart is that he will pick up small children in order to talk to them so that you don't have to cut to the child. <laughs> So like playing, that cut. Both you, you, in the frame. Right. Yeah. Guys, are you ready to go out on the boat? No! What happened to you? What happened? Now, once again, here's a, here's a little street fair that we built, but which goes on in New York all the time, where schools will have money-raising street fairs. It's, it's the sort of thing that I thought was important to sell this little small town notion of see this is what it's really like in Manhattan it's a neighborhood once again you will see a lot of fall leaves all of them fake this was shot in February or March the end of this scene, you're going to see Tom and the two kids with cotton candy. This was one of those ideas you have when you're shooting. You say, God, wouldn't it be great if we had cotton candy? And the prop man, Jimmy Mazzola's face falls because he does not have any cotton candy with him. And three hours later, he has driven all over the city of New York and managed to find a cotton candy machine. And there it is. And there it is. And it was worth it. And, of course, this is what happens to all of us when you take a kid to the fair. They get all this stuff, and you end up carrying it. Right. <laughs> Meg here is reading from one of my favorite books, which is Boy by Roald Dahl, which is the first volume of his autobiography. And the beginning, the section she's reading is the section that you can see when you read the book became the basis for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and all of the things in Roald Dahl's books where kids were just obsessed with candy. This early obsession of his starts very, very early with this horrible woman who ran the candy store near his school, whom they played a, a trick on and got into terrible trouble as a result. The great thing about shooting in this bookstore was that our entire crew, we were in a children's bookstore, and the entire crew, mostly males, grips, gaffers, you know, were standing around and reading these children's books and enjoying them and talking about them, bringing them home for their children. I think it was a great education for them. Betsy and Stacy. Betsy Tacy. Yes, they're talking about the Betsy Tacy books, which were among my favorites when I was growing up, by Maud Hart Lovelace. And this was something that was very important to us, that there be first editions of old children's books. It's part of what made this a serious bookstore. We wanted to sell the idea that this was a place that really cared about the history of children's Annabelle, literature. I always had Annabelle, two 
gigantic problems when I started thinking about it. The first was, what kind of store is it? Because for sure I have no interest in perfume, leather goods, or musical instruments. And second of all, how do you get this wonderful story to stop being a play? Because it had never, ever quite gotten away from its roots, which were as this little Hungarian play that took place on one set in the shop around the corner where these two people worked and hated each other and didn't know that they were in love through these Lonely Hearts letters. And my sister Delia said it should be a bookstore. This was a great suggestion for many reasons. The first was, I actually know something about bookstores having written books, shopped for them in bookstores, and my first job was in a bookstore in Beverly Hills, California, where I wrapped Christmas presents. The second thing that made it so amazing as a suggestion was that it instantly broke it out of the one set problem because if you were going to set a movie in the bookstore business, you were going to have to deal with what's going on in the bookstore business, which is there are little stores and there are big stores. And because of the big stores, the little bookstores are going out of business. So it was clear once the word bookstore came into the picture that one of them would work at a little bookstore and one of them would work at a big bookstore and there were going to be dramatic problems as a result of that. And what made it really very exciting was that unlike the original story, here there was a real reason for them not to like each other. There was, if you will, a political reason. They they believed in completely different ways of selling books. And, you know, the big bookstores, you could say, believe that books are basically commodities, cartons of milk, shoes, whatever. Whereas the little bookstores know that you sell someone a book and you're essentially selling them a piece of what may turn out to be their brains. It shapes their lives. Yes. I always liked it because it also incorporated the written word. And the letters were all about writing. And I love that that spilled over into the books being about writing. And the other thing was that we also thought we should put it in a children's bookstore which was fun for me and Delia as we were writing it because we grew up just hooked on books. And I still, I have a shelf of first edition Oz books in my house. And I just believe that if you can hook a kid on books, you've done something great for your kid. Her little speech about when you read a book as a child, it becomes part of your autobiography is is the thing I think I believe most strongly of anything in this movie. And I wanted to, in some ways, have some of the music be the musical equivalent of children's books, children's songs, songs that had the same innocence. This is one of my favorite song cues in the movie, Never Smile at a Crocodile, one of, one, a song I grew up singing, and I think it's a fairly obscure thing. But um, here, here you see a moment when you're really happy to have Tom Hanks in a movie because it was not on purpose that this balloon got stuck in the door. Wedged in by mistake. And, see them really laughing. And this is an ad lib that he says. Good. <laughs> Good thing it wasn't the fish was an ad lib that he came up with at that moment, which, of course, gave you a great ending for the scene. It's one of those things that a smart director just goes with. 
And now you see this little neighborhood of these modest little grates. Suddenly there is an electric grate and it's a quiet grate and it's an expensive grate. Money has landed here. You know, this isn't a pebble in the pond. The entire pond is churning from the amount of money that you're seeing here. Now, um, this bookstore, uh, you know, this uh, old Barney's, woman's Barney's that we turned into a bookstore, the neighborhood actually thought that there was going to be this big bookstore coming into the neighborhood. Most of the neighborhood was very excited about it. In fact, the day that we opened it, they were trying to come in and buy books. They thought it was an actual bookstore. We had to turn them away and say, sorry, it's a movie, you got mail, you know, see it at Christmas. The rest of the neighborhood, however, was not so thrilled, especially the booksellers, a couple of blocks away, who all spent a terrible weekend thinking they were about to be put out of business by yet another megastore. This idea that Kathleen, as a young girl, had twirled with her mother around the store was Meg's idea. She came up with it, suggested it, and it became a major part of the movie. Here Meg is talking about how she's going to fight this bookstore by hanging more twinkle lights in the store. Total denial. Um, she's in total denial, but of course she's dealing with one of my favorite things in the world, twinkle lights. I try to get as many of them into movies as I can. No, you've told us a million times. You know, I can't believe you're bringing this up at a time like this. It's, it's like those people who brag because they're tall. Guys, we are not going to fold. Hey, I... This place is a tomb. I'm going to the nut shop where it's fun. George? George? One of my personal little funny, just tiny moments. She starts walking. She's connected to Heather Burns. Heather Burns is yanked along with her. Tiny, little, but I get a kick out of it. Hi. Hi. Oh, Kathleen, are you surviving? Well... We're so excited about your new book. When should we schedule a signing? Oh, it's being published in January. And what you're seeing here is a series of scenes. We're doing great. Kind of, you know, do not ask for whom the bell tolls. The bell is tolling, and she just doesn't quite understand that things are slipping away, one after another after another. Well, that nut from the Observer. What, what nut in the Observer? Frank something or other. The one who's so in love with his typewriter. This is just the sort of thing that would outrage him. Hmm. A nut? She, she called me a nut? That's not the point. She you see that tiny little grin on Heather Byrne's face behind Meg when Miranda says that that's a lovely thing Heather did. And of course, it's something that's important because we want everyone to know that it will be all right if Meg's family with Meg's family if she breaks up with Greg Kinnear. Right, right. Now, this is Nora's friend, Bruce J. Friedman. This is Bruce J. Friedman, the famous novelist, and this is meant to be the apartment of a New York literary person, and so there are many, many framed pictures of Bruce J. Friedman's books all over the walls. favorite scene in the movie, the whole cocktail party. Champagne, please. Right. Still wait on the rocks, put a fresh glass, please. 
This was a terrible set to shoot oh, on. It was a real apartment. It was a loft apartment on West 17th Street, and it had one elevator or and and 90 extras and the film crew and they had to come up. We were miserable shooting in this shoot. space. We started shooting when the sun went down. We and one of the reasons up. why there's no coverage here, I only have a close-up of Meg, I don't have a close-up of Tom, is because it was the last thing we did, and we didn't have time to get that very last shot. And people in the apartment didn't want us there. The lights, you know, we were up on the 12th floor. The lights were so hot, everybody was sweating. Oh, it was a miserable night. Now she's walking toward the buffet table, which I would like to say is set with all of my favorite recipes, including my egg mold, surrounded with caviar that is going to play an exciting role in this scene. And in fact, we came up with that moment when he takes all the caviar off the egg thing the, the night we were shooting in a walkthrough rehearsal with the real food, which is one of the reasons why I always think it's important to have the real food in a rehearsal, because you never can tell what an actor is going to come up with. And, and we then, I said to Meg, I think you should say that caviar is a garnish. I've always tried to get the word garnish into a movie because I think it's just a funny word. I think it's just, it, there's, it's sort of like the Yiddish word gornish, but I don't know what gornish means. I love her expression, too. The whole bit that she does carving the turkey later in the scene came up in an earlier rehearsal where we had the turkey at the rehearsal. We came to this apartment and rehearsed the actors during the rehearsal period, and Meg came up with the wonderful moment where, in the middle of carving the turkey, she finds herself with a knife in her hand, pointed facing, at pointed at him, yes. Taking all the caviar, that caviar is a garnish. It's all Tom Hanks. The reason I came into it's why he makes all that money and you don't mind. I love him. And that's all Meg Ryan scooping the caviar right back from him. That will not always be the case. And it was yours, and it is a charming little bookstore. You probably sell, what, $350,000 worth of books in a year? How did you know that? I'm in the book business. I am in the book business. I see. And we are the Price Club. Only instead of a 10-gallon vat of olive oil for $3.99 that won't even fit under your kitchen cabinet, we sell cheap books. Me, a spy. You can see Meg just putting all of her anger into that slicing. She's just slicing it as if it's, it's you know, him. Yes, exactly. This was very important to Meg, this scene, because she wanted to make clear that part of the movie was about this woman finding her ability to, to or finding her voice, finding, going from a person who really couldn't say what she meant to say to a person who could, partly because of her relationship with him online, because he helps her to say whatever she means to say at the moment she means to say it. Your last piece in The Observer about Anthony Poe was, was brilliant. 
Brilliant. Yes. This is my favorite scene. I'm Patricia Eden. I love this scene, and it's definitely my favorite line in the movie that Parker utters about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, which is the kind of line that plays in about three theaters in New York City, but I don't care because it is just so funny. It's Delia's great line. And here you see a sort of masterpiece of cutting, I think, by Richard Marks, who managed to get all these moments where Meg goes from being so proud of her boyfriend to so Im- to being so embarrassed about him. And the same exact thing happens with Tom. And each of them trying to lord it over the other about what an idiot their significant other is being. And here's Parker. Brought such great energy to her role. No idea Frank Nevasky is going to be so down to earth. One of the hardest things to do when you're playing a part like the part that Parker is playing is to make that kind of hot, you know, very high-strung woman completely adorable. This is one of the scenes that I think really does it. And the snoring was Parker's idea. I'm not tired. I'm not. These computer things are shot with a little baby crane. Um, Very tricky to keep it from wobbling when it gets to the end of the shot, as you can see if you look really carefully. But But it's... I mean, watch how great Richard Marks... Watch that. The whole sequence, you'll see, you're not even hardly aware they're writing each other. Well, and the other thing, of course, is how much there is on Tom's face. And not even on Tom's whole face, really only on half of his face. Because because one of the things I love to do with John Lindley, who was the cinematographer on this, is not do the usual, it's a comedy so it should be bright thing. We're never afraid for it to be a little dark yes, and a little moody. Then I spent all night tossing and turning trying to figure out what I should have said. What should I have said, for example, to the bottom dweller? Both of them, so much fun to watch. I, I once... I remember when I was growing up, people used to say, he's such a great actor, he could read the telephone book. And... I don't know if anyone is that good an actor, but these two... They could. You know, they, they're so good that they're interesting when they're at computers. That's right. You're struggling along with her to think of what to say. And again, here's that little baby crane, which, which gives you just enough motion in the shot so you don't get bored just watching his face at the computer. The moment you mean to say it, remorse inevitably follows. Do you think we should meet? Meet? Oh, my God. Now, this whole sequence that ends in Zabar's... um, 
has this great Louis see, Armstrong. See, see that little sign there that says it's a girl behind Meg? That's my little neighborhood thing. This whole sequence has a great Louis Armstrong song, which is a sort of, this is the moment when you're looking for a song called I Hate You So Much I Can't Believe It. And this was just a wonderful song that worked. This is all, of course, Meg doing this wonderful physical comedy that she's so great at. This is the... was an all-night shoot at Zabar's, the famous, famous Upper West Side Food Emporium, which I'm proud to say let us in. The only movie they've ever let shoot there. All we had to do was promise that you'd see the name of their store six or seven times, and as you can see, we do. Oh, my God. Oh, Oh, I just have a credit card. I'm sorry. Is that okay? No, it's not okay. There's a sign. I'm sorry. I'm very This is an urban nightmare that you will be on the cash-only line. Any city in America. Yes. That an entire world of people will turn against you just because you were so distracted you weren't looking. Hello. Hi. Do you need some money? No, I do not need any money. Thank you very much. Get in another line. Hi. Rose. This scene is actually based on something that once happened to me when we couldn't get... There were a lot of us traveling on a movie and we were stuck in an airport. There were about 20 of us. And they wouldn't let us into the first-class lounge because there were too many of us. And my first AD was an incredibly handsome guy. And he talked the woman into it. And I watched her lose her mind as he convinced her that all 20 of us should be let into the first-class lounge. And it's the frustration women feel at the way a man can charm a woman and nothing, all of the politeness in the world will not get you to first base. Happy Thanksgiving. Henry, happy Thanksgiving. I'm so sorry, really. I apologize. I apologize from the bottom of my so heart. So sign already. I'd Thank like you. to get home and find you have my pen. Parade. Okay. This is the only song that was in the script. And it was the song I started out thinking of all the music as a result of, in that it's a children's song, but if you listen to the words, it has a lot of meaning for adults. And it was the song that we took a lot of cues from, and it's why we use the puppy song and Never Smile at a Crocodile. And Hallie Hirsch, um, who plays Annabelle, the the little girl, Actually, has a fantastic voice, but Nora, from one of the takes, said, asked her to sing it as though she couldn't sing. So she's such a gifted actress that she was able to sing it badly as well as well. She sings it well enough to play Annie. Yeah, she does. She's got a great yeah. voice. And, of course, you contrast this very lavish family Thanksgiving to Meg's much more homey, um, Traditional. you know, just, just you know, so much more modest. 
so much more pathetic, really. You know that they're, they're doing their own dishes at this Thanksgiving, whereas at Tom's Thanksgiving, there are servants scrubbing in the kitchen. But so much more preferable, so much... So once again, a kind of, you know, distinction between the, the big, bad Fox books and the noble, charming little bookstore. And once again, a moment to show that Meg and Greg Kinnear are not in sync with one another. And just when you think all you're watching is Thanksgiving singing, here comes another toll on the bell. This happens all the time to little bookstores where authors that they have supported just become total hookers and go sell their books in the big bookstores. We created the snow because for some reason and because of weird weather, El Nino and all that, New York didn't get any snow while we were filming. You know that Joni Mitchell song? These you'll see are ruby slippers, which is a little teeny way to sneak in The Wizard of Oz. But I was thinking about it tonight as I was decorating my Christmas tree, unwrapping funky ornaments. Another picture of her mother, Cecilia. I always miss my mother at Christmas, but somehow it is worse this year since I need some advice. A beautifully lit moment with Meg, which then matches this shot of Tom in silhouette, which is so, both of them, you, they feel so alone, I think, and that's part of what John Lindley, the cinematographer, was trying to do. Now, of course, it's another day. And, and note that she's on the left side of the bed. I wish so that when we cut to Tom, I had a gut feeling you would be online now. He's on the right. We originally hoped to do this split screen, and we shot it to be split screen and cut it split screen, and it didn't work. It wasn't as exciting if it was split screen. It was much more exciting to bounce back and forth between the two of them and feel that kind of shock you feel when you get an instant message, you know, and they go so fast. Can I think fast enough? Can I write fast enough? So so all the care and trouble we went to to be able to shoot this, to cut it split screen, we then took apart. I think subconsciously you still get the effect. Now let's talk about The Godfather a little bit, why we included all the lines from The Godfather. Well, it seemed like a good idea. Um, Tom loved loves The Godfather. We, Delia and I often like to stick movies into our movies. In Sleepless in Seattle, of course, An Affair to Remember is the movie in the movie. And this movie has The Godfather. We put in a huge amount of stuff about The Godfather before we discovered something we had no idea of, which is that almost every time a deal is made on Wall Street people refer to a line from The Godfather. I had no idea of this. But a banker that we know told us this, that when a deal closes on Wall Street, people say, I'm going to leave this suitcase on the table, and if it's still here, when I, if someone gets fired, they say, well, you ain't going to see Fredo no more. It's 
amazing. There's a line from The Godfather for almost every moment, you know. And what Tom writes here is what I believe. The Godfather is the I Ching. There's a line for almost every occasion. Of course, this little imitation he does of Brando was all Tom's idea. The answer to your question is go. The little whimpering noises and you're at war. moment when he says Michael. That's an improv. It's business. Business. Recite that to yourself every time you feel you're losing your nerve. I know you worry about being brave. Don't. This is your chance. Fight. Fight. Fight to the death. Fight to the death. Now, here, just watch Meg. That moment when Greg wipes past her and she completely changes from being a nervous wreck to utterly calm. It's, it's just a moment of physical comedy that, that you can't believe how wonderfully it's done. Yeah. And look how comfortable they are, as though really they have lived together several years. Also, notice how the lighting, how John does the lighting, which we love to do. So it really feels like it's a late afternoon and the little light is coming in through the windows. But we're on a soundstage. We could have made it as bright as we wanted, but we wanted it to really feel... Also, as if the two of them were alone. End of the day. End of the day. And here we are. You are what you read is something that Greg writes in this slightly, slightly pretentious article he has written where he has quoted from a variety of people like Herodotus. Of course, that's not a real quote from Herodotus. It's something I made up. But, but most people won't know that. <laughs> well, most people won't hear it because the Godfather music, this is our homage to the Godfather music. We, needless to say, tried to get the real score of the Godfather. Paramount would not give it to us. No, so we they did guard it like the crown jewel. So George Fenton did a wonderful homage to... Italian music. That was Meg. That's all Meg, all that all punching. Her, yeah, all her uh, Muhammad Ali And this sayings. sort of pathetic demonstration to me is so New York, so Upper West Side, these mothers and children being enlisted at the age of five into their parents' liberal crusades. <laughs> Holding some sign they can't even read. It was raining that day, do you remember? It started raining on the end of this shot. This is actually a shot that I feel bad about because you can't really see how many people were there. There were, it looks as if we're faking a little crowd when there was really a big crowd. Tom actually ran all night long and uh, Not as nice as she seems on television. You met her? Yeah. Boy, she's a pill. And Dave Chappelle walked all night long. <laughs> He's no fool. She's a pill. You don't feel bad. 
about basically sending her ass back to the projects with food stamps. No. Broke single white lady. Dave Chappelle brought a lot to this part. He he changed a lot of the lines. Um, one of the reasons we wanted him is that he's a great stand-up comic, and I said to him, please, please make this part more your own, and he did. Yeah, funny guy. I said, oh, I can't believe those bastards. I said we were great. I said you could sit and read for hours and no one will bother. I said we had 150,000 titles. I showed the New York City section. I said we were a goddamn piazza. A place in the city where people could mingle and mix and be. Piazza. I was eloquent. Thanks. Shit. I was eloquent is one of my favorite lines. Of course, it's partly inspired by the 2,000-year-old man who... Do you remember when he talks about how he didn't understand that Jesus was his, was going to turn out to be so important that he couldn't imagine that the cross was going to be better than a Jewish star. He says, I didn't know it was eloquent. Oh, this is great. This scene, this scene is a uh, sort of, first, of course, we shot Greg and Jane Adams doing this seen on television and they they had a great time together and improvised quite a lot i told jane jane did not know about the famous story of marlo thomas and phil donahue who fell in love on the air while he was interviewing her but that is what kind of inspired this was the idea that you would actually be able to see two people getting this attraction to one another and she did all this great stuff and then when we showed it on the set to Greg and Meg, they began to improvise reactions to it. So the line, is she sweating, she's touching herself and sweating, is Meg's line. And the minute she said it, we kept it in all the subsequent takes. One of the things I like to do with actors is if they improvise something that I love, I say keep that in, do it again, don't lose that. (laughs) Honestly, I'd, I'd love to have you back. Is she sweating? She's touching herself, and she's sweating. Well, I, any time. <laughs> okay, we, we can turn it off. And once again, you see this bizarre thing that can happen when an actor makes a mistake. He said, thank your, it was a complete accident. He didn't mean to say thank your, it wasn't in the script. Jane Adams made a joke about it, Meg made a joke about it, and you have a joke that goes... Improv on improv on improv. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. And now, of course, is the final tolling of the bell. It's the final moment when Meg realizes that she must act um, and set the basically next section of the movie in motion where she decides to meet him. I wanted New York to feel like a small town. I had been to a big convention where a lot of sort of media people were talking, and I'd heard a woman named Esther Dyson, who's a kind of guru of the Internet, talking. And she was talking about how the Internet was a series of small conspiracies. And I thought, what a brilliant insight that is, because the Internet seems so vast and unknowable and impossible when you first get it on your computer, and then you discover that it's just a bunch of little small communities that you can go into if you're interested in them. And 
that, of course, replicated exactly what we were trying to do with New York. We were trying to say about New York that it was a neighborhood. And there are all kinds of moments in the movie where I'll point out little spots where we were trying to sell the small townness that you actually feel if you live in New York as we do. You know your butcher. You know your florist. People don't really understand if they don't live in a place like New York, it, it seems as vast and impossible as the internet. And yet, like the internet, it's a series of Little small villages. conspiracies. Little neighborhoods. For people who are construction buffs, this scene is in the second act of the movie, which basically begins with the words, do you think we should meet? This is the end of the first act of the second act of the movie. She decides to meet, and now the meeting is the second act of the second act. In, 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 All acts have three acts. Right, and the, and the point is to complicate it and keep complicating it and keep turning up the heat until the third act when you resolve the complication. Always take a relationship to the next level. If that works out, I take it to the next level after that. Till I finally reach that level where it becomes absolutely necessary for me to leave. Huh. And I'm not gonna stay that long anyway. I already said that, didn't I? Yes, you did. No. Great music by George Fenton here. It's really wonderful music. This scene in front of Cafe Lalo, a real cafe on West 83rd Street, is one of four scenes in the movie that bears a real resemblance to anything in the shop around the corner. In fact, this has several lines straight out of that scene when Dave Chappelle goes in and looks through the window and sees Meg Ryan and doesn't quite know how to break it to Tom. You're pathetic, man. And watch Tom as he he can barely, you know, that moment a minute ago when he sat down on the bench and just sort of felt his way down into it. All the little things he does to sell the unlikely notion that Tom Hanks could ever be nervous about anything. <laughs> All right. Okay, wait. Wait, wait a minute. All right, look, there's a book with the flowers, so there's got to be her. And what does she look like? Can't see her. Wait, it's blocking. Damn it. Oh, hold on. He's moving. He's moving. Yeah? Ah. Uh, can you see her? Can you see her? Yeah. And? She's very pretty. She is! I knew she would be! She had to be! This... She had to be, she had to be as double cut by Richie Marks. It was only once in the movie, but we used it in two different shots to make the joke build. That Kathleen Kelly person. Kathleen Kelly of the little bookstore. Well, why not? You said you thought she was attractive. Absolutely, yes, why not? Who cares about Kathleen Kelly? Well, if you don't like Kathleen Kelly, I can tell you right now, you ain't gonna like this girl. Why not? Because it is Kathleen Kelly. Those lines are the lines that really were in every single version of this piece. Every, if you don't like 
Kathleen Kelly, I can tell you right now, you aren't going to like this girl. That is just one of my favorite lines yeah. from Shop Around the Corner. One of the reasons we chose this location, Cafe Lalo, is that it's a half a flight up from the street. And the original had always had a sequence where the friend looks in the window. And I wanted it to be this thing where, in order to look into the window, he could see something that Tom couldn't see. So that, from the very beginning, the first draft of the script said Cafe Lalo in it. We really knew many of the locations before we scouted. Oh, this is and from the original. This is... She had Anna Karenina. She had Anna Karenina, and we had Pride and Prejudice. And one of the reasons we had Pride and Prejudice, besides the fact that I've read it more times than I've read Anna Karenina, and I never understand what Anna Karenina is doing in this story, because it's about someone who throws herself under a train, yeah. really. But, but this Pride and Prejudice, it was such a perfect thing, because it was about two people who don't like each other. It's a, one of the great root things of romantic comedy is Taming of the Shrew and Pride and Prejudice. And now Tom does something very, very mean to Meg here. He rags her about that book, says you probably read it every year as a really mean thing to say, which is something he only knows because she has told him so. And this, again, very the scene, even though some of the lines are different, very similar thing happens in Shop Around the Corner where he sits at her table. She begs him to leave. She is frantic because she is sure Mr. Wright is going to walk in the door. He stands up, we think, to leave, and then sits down back to back with her. Discover a lot of things if you really knew. Those lines are right from the really from the original. Knew I know what I would find instead of a brain, a cash register, instead of a heart, a bottom line. What? I just had a breakthrough. And at the same time, some of it isn't from the original right. because it has our own little right. themes right. built right. into it. But those two great lines. Um, Instead of a, a, a brain, a cash register, instead of a heart, a bottom line. Meanness. Let me tell you something about meanness. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just trying to pay you a compliment. Oh, oh, what why are you touching that? What is this are you a red doing? rose? No, you know, you know, it's a crimson rose. Something you read about in a book, no doubt. It's funny to you, isn't it? Everything is a joke I'm to you. I'm actually not sure that a brain instead of a cash register is in the movie. It is, no, it's something similar to it, but we did our own version. But poetry and meanness is from the movie. A yeah. um, perfect blend of poetry and meanness is something that Jimmy Stewart says. Thank you. One of the things I did, because this is a very, very long scene, um, and... I like shooting long scenes, but a lot of people don't. And one of the things we did in the scene was we did something called jumping the line. We jumped the line in the scene so that instead of being on this side of the actors looking at the back of the restaurant, 
we were on the other side of the actors looking out the window at the street. We jump the line on Tom's move, which is about to happen right here, which is such an abrupt move as he stands up that the camera's able to bounce to the other side without completely discombobulating the viewer. And it makes you feel not that you've gone to a different set, but that you have moved into a different space or a different room, and it makes it possible to have a six- or seven-page scene not feel unbelievably lengthy. We've escalated. That man who just walked in in the magician's cape was our video assist man. Peter Mayan. Right, fantastic video assist man. Stepped right into that cape, which Albert Wolski, our costume designer, came up with on a moment's notice when we decided we didn't have quite the right thing walking in the door. When we first proposed it to Peter, he stuck his hand out and yelled, Taxi! (laughs) In the script, we had a... uh, a very lovely female impersonator walking in the door, but it just seemed like a, a bad gag. So we improvised and came up with a man in a red cape. And they think she was fine, and they think her store was something special. Now this is, what is the original line in the shop around the corner? You are nothing but a clerk, she says to him, because he's a clerk in the bookstore with her. It is, of course, a vicious, vicious line, much more vicious than nothing nothing but a suit. But it was hard to think of something we could call him that would have that perfect one-syllable thing and that was as vicious a word as we could think of. And it's it's actually a pretty vicious word, but he isn't a clerk, so you can't call him one. But a suit is bad, and he sits there absorbing it. This the is the Roy Orbison dream, which I tried to get into about three movies in a row, and I finally succeeded. What a voice. A lot of the song cues in this movie are about dreams. Starting with the cranberries. Starting with the cranberries, which was Lauren's idea. Um, and, And reinforce the reality of this movie, which is a reality we would have to call not quite reality. Also, her wonderful line when... Later on in the movie, when she breaks up Greg Kinnear and she mutually break up, and he says, is there someone there? And she says, no. But there's a dream of someone else. Right. And that is the end of the second act of the second act of the movie. Um, The third act of the second act begins here where they each break up with 
better go back to the office their respective their respectives not really others this is a well-oiled machine my friend so what happened he never came he stood you off i wouldn't exactly characterize it in that way i think something happened something terrible and unexpected that made it impossible for him to what if he showed up? All the things that seem so left. easy. Do you remember her getting into the Not grate? Possible. How do we open the grate? How do we get her down? Maybe open the grate, get her in the door. <laughs> and have it go quickly enough. It looks so easy now. Just bend down, boom, you're in. And you know how those express trains create He got sucked onto the tracks. The third rail. He's toast. What happened? He was unable to make it. He stood you up? Maybe he had a car accident. Those cab drivers are maniacs. Yeah, you know, they hit something and you slam into that plastic partition. Or, or his elbows could be in splints, so he couldn't really dial. Or he could be unconscious in a coma. Oh. Stuck in intensive care. Wait. With that heart monitor beeping. And, like, no, no phone. phone. What? Now, this is something that really happened in Nora's building. There was a rooftop killer. There was a rooftop killer in my building, and yes. Building yes. In fact, the roof, there was a sort of large subplot in this movie about the rooftop killer, but it hit the cutting room floor very early on. And uh, many of the things in this movie actually are stuff that, things that kind of happen and then they get put into a movie. Um, Delia got stuck in an elevator one day and it went into the movie the next day and in a few minutes you're about to see a scene where everyone gets stuck in the elevator and the elevator man actually suggests that the way to fix the elevator is for everyone to jump in the air and then it will convince the elevator no one is in it. That actually happened. So He was unavoidably detained. Now we're going into a very long email section here. Um, and a few things to look at here is how careful you have to be not to stay on any one shot too long. This shot is another one of our, this is not a crane, but, but it moves around her so that it, it's not too boring. Um, And the other thing we were doing in this section, this is probably just a literary conceit, but one of the things we were trying to do was the thing that always happens in books like Pride and Prejudice, where everything is changed by a letter. In the 19th century, almost all romantic comedies all the misunderstandings are shifted when a letter arrives. And, of course, it's a terrible moment whenever you make a movie out of these things because there's a letter that arrives, and then the heroine opens it, and then she has to go for a long walk on the moor while you hear a voiceover of the letter. We, of course, have these two actors and computers, and our letters are much shorter. It's one of the great virtues of email is that it really isn't very long. Most of the time you're just writing a few minutes to everyone and then you send it but this was cut this whole long section was cut so wonderfully by Richard Marx so that you wouldn't 
get bored. And I think actually the opposite happens because you honestly don't know what's going to happen here. You do not know. Mm. He has now read a letter that completely alters everything he thinks of her. He realizes that she feels awful. He realizes why she did what she did. He now, you know, is miserable. And meanwhile, the computer is doing this thing. And George Fenton did a wonderful music cue here. And Richard Marks did this wonderful jump cutting of of Tom going back and forth. And that thing I always feel about my computer, which is that it's just singing a song like a siren. Come to me, talk to me, turn me on, be with me. Wouldn't you rather be with me than anyone else in your house? And that is that thing that just gets so powerful that he is just pulled right into the room where he begins to write, I guess, the longest letter in the movie. Uh, A two-part letter, though, a part that starts funny and gets serious. And, of course, the music is an enormous help here because we've got this kind of umpa tuba thing playing that that is so comical and that's sort of underscoring all of this stuff. And that will, of course, change when he stops lying and tells the truth, or at least as close to the truth as he can tell without giving everything away. Now, this dog is Clovis. No, this dog is Bonnie. Amazingly. Just for those dog fans. There was a thin dog and a fat dog. And again, this scene works for many reasons, the cutting, the music, but most especially because of Tom Hanks and what goes on in his eyes. Dear friend, I cannot tell you what happened last night. And here's the love theme coming, sneaking in here. Forgive me for not being there. For what happened. I feel terrible that you found yourself in a situation that caused you additional pain. But I'm absolutely sure that whatever you said last night was provoked even deserved. And everyone says things they regret when they're worried or stressed. You were expecting to see someone you trusted and met the enemy instead. The fault is mine. And on another subject, this location was chosen because it doesn't look like New York at all. It looks like Paris, and it's just such a gorgeous curve on Riverside Drive that people don't really know. And it's the kind of thing you get very attached to as a director because you don't really need that little walk by. You could stay on Tom till the end of it, but it was so pretty and the light was so beautiful and it gave it... We weren't going 
cutting from an interior to another interior gave you a little outdoor thing. And And with the dog walker who walked by with all the dogs, as we were filming, we would see dogs out of the corner of our eyes, and Nora would dispatch the ADs and say, get that dog, get that dog. This was an apartment on Riverside Drive that belonged to a couple who had spent their lives. They ran a store called Greek Island, and they had a lot of beautiful things. And I walked into it and fell in love with it, and everyone was insane at me because everyone knew it was going to be very hard to shoot in this apartment without harming something. But I don't think we harmed a hair on its head. But I wanted to give Birdie a sense. You see how she's against that red room, which gives her a kind of romantic past. That was the reason I knew she had to sit in that chair, because I wanted her to be the one who was the most mysterious and romantic, even though you would hardly think that's what Birdie is. But of course, that's what you find out she is. And of course, over Heather, you see the river, you see Riverside Drive, and you know you could only be in New York. He ran Spain. Spain? The country. He ran it. It was his job. And then he died. Just as well. Milk or lemon? She fell in love with Generalissimo. Here we are at the escalator at the Sony 68th Street multiplex. The largest movie theater in the United States. Well, maybe not the largest, but the one that has the highest grosses. I do know that. It does. Yeah. People do really stupid things in foreign countries. Absolutely. They buy leather jackets for much more than they're worth, but they don't fall in love with fashion. Her second AD, Maggie, sitting in the front, white shirt. Maggie Murphy. Maggie Murphy. Thank you. This is one of the themes of this movie, actually. It's one of the things that makes it different from Sleepless, I always think. Because Sleepless is a movie that's about, is there one perfect person out there for you? And of course, we always think the perfect person for us is, well, if you ask people to make a list of who the perfect person is for them, What they essentially write down, they'll write down. Democrat, plays tennis, loves to watch television, loves old movies. What they're basically writing down is a description of themselves. They want to meet themselves. And that's what we think of when we're thinking of that one perfect person, the perfect match. But the truth is, this is a movie called Could You Fall in Love with Someone Who Isn't the Perfect Person for You? Or as Delia and I used to say, Could You Fall in Love with a Republican? And... This is the sequence where he says, I could never fall in love with anyone who, which is the kind of arrogant thing you say when you're 20-something or even 30-something in Greg's case, and which, as you get older and wiser, turns out to be a completely ridiculous thing. When Greg Kinnear committed to this movie... um, the character he played did not break up with the character that Meg Ryan played. And he came into the movie and he was very concerned he didn't want to be that stock Ralph Bellamy character who kind of is the butt of every joke and doesn't really have any moment. And and 
he brought a lot of wonderful stuff into the movie because he was right to demand that his part be slightly different from the way these other parts are written sometimes by people like me. And so we came up with the idea of having him break up with her, which led to the idea that the person interviewing him on television was a woman rather than the man that it had been in an earlier draft. Um, in fact, I think I had used Jeff Greenfield's name in all That's the right. earlier drafts. That's right. He was going to end up with Patricia. Yes, actually, in the earlier draft, the character Greg plays was going to run off with Parker Posey. But these were some of the things that we turned against. But we wanted to write. I suppose it's very rare that this happens, that people break up with one another, and it's such a relief. But we all like to think it's possible that, that it could happen, that two people really have simultaneously reached a moment where... It's not working. They both realize it. And this is the Harry Nielsen song coming back in again that we first heard as she was sitting in the window decorating the Christmas tree and just starting to understand that the store was going to close. George did an instrumental introduction into it. And I mentioned a note I gave Meg. Meg at this moment because we were shooting this scene where she's looking over at the big bookstore. And I said to her, just, you know what it's like? It's like when you're walking past a movie marquee of a gigantic hit movie that you turn down. And and you she just she, you know just that just that idea of I don't want to see it I don't want to see it I don't want to see it I don't want to but I really am going to go see it so here she is in the enemy territory yeah. And this is a, you know, this is a moment I'm, that is the moment that the movie kind of says to you, see, it's not as simple as we said. There's something to these big bookstores. Um, and it's the moment she realizes that you can't, how could she ever compete with this square footage? How could you ever have that many children on the floor of your bookstore. It's, it's a terrible, terrible moment for her because it's over. She's lost. She's lost. And what makes it worse is that she can't even imagine that 
this place is that horrible because she sees it isn't that horrible. Fortunately, of course, something horrible is about to happen. Um, in the tradition of these large bookstores, there is a clerk who has never read a book. <laughs> Noel Stritfield wrote ballet shoes and skating shoes and theater shoes and dancing shoes. And I'd start with ballet shoes first. It's my favorite. Although skating shoes is completely wonderful. But it's out of print. One of the bizarre side effects of this movie is that those shoe books are now back in print because we called Random House and told them that we were going to mention the shoe books in the movie and wouldn't they think of reprinting them because they owned them and uh, they did. It's like her name was in the air, Joe. Just like that. Everyone was talking about her today. Kathleen Kelly and her situation. And I was thinking that she'd make a great children's book editor. Here we are back on Riverside Drive, 91st in Riverside Drive. I can't remember. Somewhere like that. Somewhere like that. And, of course, this is a practical set. This is the lobby of that building they just walked in the door of. Inside, actually, when we were filming outside, inside it was lined with kids who had stayed up. To, to meet Tom Hanks. He has such an enormous fan base. The parents all let the kids stay up, and then he came in and said hello to each and, one of, each and every one of them. And now they step into this elevator, and the elevator door closes, and we're on a set That's right. of the elevator. Down in the village. You know, I love how you've totally forgotten We built the set so that we could obviously take the walls down because you can't really make a four-shot in the space of an elevator. And later in this sequence, you'll see we have an overhead shot that is a time cut in the elevator, which, of course, we needed a set to do. This is Mike Bataluco, who's on The Practice and who was the assistant prop man on Sleepless in Seattle before he became a wonderful, successful television actor. And... We got him to fly in as a favor to play this very small part. And Deborah Rush, who's a great actress that I love. And may I say Lucy the dog? And the dog is my dog. Yes, that's Lucy Pileggi, who lives with us. And she was hired that day and I think does an incredible job. She matches herself from time to time and... Steals the scene. Yeah. All right, let's this, as I said earlier on the DVD, if you weren't listening, is something that actually happened to Delia in the elevator of our building. The elevator was stuck. The doorman suggested everyone jump in the air. Everyone thought it was a horrible idea, but they all jumped in the air, and nothing whatsoever happened. Two, three, jump. And now you see this overhead shot that, of course, we needed the set. I'm going to start speaking to my mama. Wonder what she's doing this, this is one of those scenes where every actor, I love the work every single actor did on this scene, but at the end of the day, the last actor we shot was Tom. And you could have cut the entire thing just on his face. There was so much going on on it. And you'll see that at the very end of the scene when... When right here it starts, where you absolutely see him start to know 
that this is probably the last elevator he's going to be in with her. What? I came home tonight and, and got into the this elevator. This begins one of my, my favorite voiceovers. An hour later. Just in the poignancy of what he says. And Brinkley and I moved out. Once he's inside. everything had become clear. The boat. It's a long story. Full of the personal details we avoid so carefully. Let me just say, there was a man sitting in the elevator with me who knew exactly what he wanted. And I found myself wishing I were as lucky as he. People are always telling you that change is a good thing. Again, I just want to point out the light that John Lindley does on these sets that feels so much like the the random way the sun comes in the windows if you live in a city apartment it doesn't hit all the surfaces there are shadows as there are in real life but not in a lot of comedies but soon will just be a memory in fact someone some foolish person will probably think it's a one of my personal my my other favorite scene coming up the way you can never count on it or something I know because that's the sort of thing. And this whole voiceover is beautiful. This is a beautiful voiceover and really one of the best music cues of a score that I adore, George Fenton's score, but the most important part of it about to come as Meg turns around and turns out the light and suddenly sees her past and you hear these strong notes boom 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 and this part of it is little bit of slow motion, just the tiniest bit of slow motion. And this is intercutting. This is this is the set store. The set and then we go right to this shot. This is my is, is the real place with the street behind her. The and real street and... Everything else before that was the set. Now we're in, this, in, in the street. This is, of course, the payoff to all those greats at the beginning of the movie. Here is the, the great to end the greats. And this is also the very end of the second act of the movie. Um, of the third this, act. No, this no, is the, the end of the I second act. Sorry. This is the end Wait, of the no. third act of the second act. But it's the end of the second act and... There's a little pause, we go to a little black, before the music starts, it's spring. Now we are suddenly in a different season and the third act. This Randy Newman song is a song that is a personal favorite of mine, and it was the idea of our script supervisor, Diane Dreyer, the day we were shooting this scene. She said, lonely at the top, it's got to be lonely at the top. 
magic hour shot. Now we're back on the set at the Teaneck Armory in New Jersey. Let's see. Your mother. Tabney Coleman insisted on eating peanuts in this scene, and it was very difficult to cut because often when he spoke, you could see the peanuts on his tongue, and Richie Marks had to cut the whole scene around this mouthful of peanuts that Dabney had, which which simply were distracting, how to put this. They were slightly distracting, these peanuts. They changed in volume. Just like Jillian. Jillian ran off with someone? The nanny. Nanny Maureen? Yes. Well, Jillian ran off with Nanny Maureen. Hmm. You got it. It's incredibly ironic. That's true. No other word for it. I think that this is the second time Dabney has played Tom's father in a movie. I'm not sh- I think Tom said something like that. I don't remember what the other time was. But they have a kind of great resemblance without looking at all like one another. Same nose. Yeah. Of course, I'll be living out of a suitcase for at least three weeks. And then there's the inevitable legal hassle. More of your inheritance down the drain, but don't you worry about it. Again here, watch Tom. Watch how much he does in a short space of time with just one look. That's not the one I mean. It's coming right up here, the last shot of this scene. That. Now, this is another scene that is a version of something that's in the original shop around the corner, the scene where she has a cold and he comes to her apartment to see her. It's not, it doesn't really resemble it, except that she has a cold and he comes to see her, and he brings her something. In every version, he has brought her something, and in this version, he's bringing her the daisies that she mentioned the first time they met in the bookstore. Because he was paying attention, like Greg Hare. Um, In She Loves Me, he brings her ice cream, and it's really probably my favorite thing anyone has ever brought anyone in anything. This is Brick Mason, who was our storyboard artist. Practically 24 hours a day, I have a temperature. And And that's the end of Brick Mason. (laughs) Now, it was Albert Wolski's idea, our costume designer, that Meg not have a bathrobe, but do this very real thing of putting on the closest possible coat. And it makes a huge difference to everything about the scene, including, as you can see, the way that bathrobe is flapping and adding to this wonderful physical comedy that Meg does, this kind of final, total, neurotic, oh my God, and then complete lady of the manor calm. What are you doing here? Hello. What are you doing here? I heard you were sick. Tom's 
job as an actor here is to get in the door. And is there somebody here? Even though that dialogue was there, he uses it to get in the door. What is that noise? And now he's in, and watch him just kind of move around her in a kind of very, very harmless way till he's more in her apartment than she is, which is a very important thing. It's almost like taking Omaha Beach, as I said to him, in rehearsals. Since he had just done Saving Private Ryan, I thought that that metaphor would be the sort of thing he might enjoy. He certainly didn't need it. And you'll watch in the scene, he continues. He goes further and further in, in. And ultimately ends up on her bed in a very clever way. Thank you. That little foot stamp was, of course, Meg's idea. And it says so much because there's just nothing worse than when you get flowers from someone because we're all suckers for flowers. It's just a terrible, terrible moment because you know you can't be too horrible to a person who gives you flowers. And now Tom, of course, is in. He is in. He is keeping house. He's putting the flowers in water. He's turned on the tea kettle. He's safe. Great. Really great. Revolutionizing the place. And this also, by the way, by knowing what happened to George, tells the audience what happened to the other people who worked in the bookstore with Meg. Not all of them, but it tells you that they're probably okay. That they're okay, exactly. Daisies are the friendliest flower. I do. Where did you break up? That's one of my favorite moments between Tom and Meg. Don't you think daisies are the friendliest flower and the I do? Such a tiny little thing, but when you're cutting a movie and you see it a hundred, two hundred, five hundred times. You get very pathologically attached to tiny little things, and that's one of the things. The way he says, I do. And, and with the way she says, don't you think daisies are the friendliest flower, which is just Meg to me at her most charming. This is another very long scene in the movie, and, and again, one of the things I try to do is keep changing the venue so that even though we've now been in this living room for somewhere between two and three minutes at this moment. We're in the third area of it. We started standing up in the door area. Then we were at the table shooting into the kitchen, and now we're at this little seating area, and you don't get the sense that you've been in here in this one room so long because people are moving, even in this tiny little space. They're moving, moving, moving until right now when a very important thing is going to happen between the two of them when she's going to tell him that everything he believes about the Godfather is wrong. Also, there's a, that little moment, that little pause was created by Richard Marks, our editor, and he just wanted there to be a little moment where, where the fighting stopped just for one moment and you could see some reason why the two of them were there. Why had she let him in? But despite herself, there was an attraction. My head is starting to get fuzzy. And you look at Tom now, and he's thinking, have I lost? Is it over? Is she going to throw me out? 
I knew it wasn't. And he's trying to stay in the room. And she wipes past him and he thinks, now what? But she hasn't asked him to leave. Can I ask you a question? (laughs) Now, once again, here we go on Omaha Beach where you'll see Tom standing. But you're crazy about it. Yes, I am. Well, why don't you run off with him? What are you waiting for? And this is a moment that Meg came up with, this head dive into the pillow that is so wonderful. Pure Meg. Oh, let me guess. Through the internet? Yes. See, now, she says yes, and he sits down. It's almost he takes her yes as permission to sit, but he's on the end of the bed. So how is he going to get closer to her? Well, he's going to pull the covers toward her. By doing this, even though this entire scene is inevitably going to be a two-shot and two singles. The singles keep changing, and the two-shot keeps changing. No, 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 wait, wait, I, I take that back. He's really, he's taking advantage, of course, of her grogginess to get this close to her. And this moment, when he puts his hands on her mouth, what I said to Tom was, this is a kiss. And here comes a lovely music cue. And it's the moment that she knows she's in trouble. Uh-oh, yeah. It's the uh-oh moment. <laughs> Sex has crept into this movie in its unbelievably gentle and innocent way. But watch her breathing. I mean, when he, as soon as he puts his hand on her mouth, you watch her breathing it's a very, in a very sexual way. Harry Nielsen again? Well, yes, here comes Harry Nielsen's third song in the movie. I will. Goodbye. Goodbye. I'll say goodbye to all my sorrow and bye tomorrow. I'll be on my way I guess the Lord must be in New York City I've been thinking about this and I think we should meet I'm so tired of getting nowhere seeing my prayers We should meet and we will meet but I'm in the middle of a project that needs Another great moment of Tom at the computer coming up with that word. You can just see his brain right through his skin. This is a shot of John Lindley's that we did where we painted. It was done in real life, but in order to get a little reflection on the window, John had the buildings across the street painted on a scrim. On a white, on white, because we were losing the light. And the white would bounce the light, and yet you saw the buildings. It was... He painted what you're now like seeing a... across the street was painted on a scrim by our scenic painter so that you just get a taste of it in his reflection 
at the window in the shot just before this one. I know this is probably a little late to be asking, but are you married? Very clever. What kind of question is what? that? How can you ask me that? Don't you know me at all? Oh, wait, I get it. Your friends are telling you the reason we haven't met is that I'm married. Am I right? So he didn't answer the question. Yes, he did. He did he not. Did too. He did. Ex he nailed me. He knew and this is the middle section of the third act. We're now in that middle section. It begins when he leaves her apartment. It's the falling in love section. It's very short. We're on uh, Columbus in 77? Yeah. You don't care. That is very unlikely. That is completely ridiculous. So what's his handle? Uh. I'm not going to write him. Is that what you're worried about? You think I'm going to email him? All of this movie was done, um, the sound was done with radio microphones, which they're wearing on their bodies. Um, actors don't like them because it feels like they're... They're constantly having to remove their blouses and things to get strapped into them. But it means that you don't have to loop a scene like this, even with all this New York traffic going past, because the microphone is so close to the actor that there's no um, car noise getting into the soundtrack. The problem of it, of course, is that sometimes your soundtrack feels a little dead when you first cut the movie. Here we're back at Verde Park um, at a outdoor market that actually takes place at this corner. This farmer's market is there at 72nd and Broadway in the farming months in the east, but this is created by us. And of course, it was one of the only moments someone got upset at us because someone tried to buy something at it and was told that it was just a set and they called the New York Times very upset and claimed that their little five-year-old had had to go whimpering off because they couldn't buy an apple at our fair. But our production people were wrong. They should have given her the apple. It's clouds illusions, I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. What does that mean? Is she a pilot? Is she taking flying lessons? It must be a metaphor for something, but I don't know what it is. Here we see the tide is turning. They're each... She's keeping very quiet. Now this, this is a, yes, the moment she does not tell him she likes Joni Mitchell is the moment you kind of know she's really lost her heart because she loves Joni Mitchell. And there's a lot, this is a, this little scene on the bench has a lot going on in it. Particularly the line at the end when she says, hope your mango's ripe. Yeah. And he says, I think it is. That is meant to mean, you know, Sexual. am I ripe? <laughs> you know, is it ripe? And when he, when he answers, not her question. Her question is meant to say, is your mango ripe? But his answer is, I think it is, meaning I think I'm on the verge of moving into the third act of the third act, which is where we now go. This is the end of the movie, begins here. And that is 
Bonnie, I think the dog. Today? Today. Wow. I know. In Riverside Park. Mm. Well, that would mean he's a West Side. We took that window out of the restaurant so that we could shoot right through like that. One of the magics, magical movie-making moments. Look what we can do. We can take a window out of a hot dog stand. Get rid of glare. This is 78th Street, one of my favorite streets in New York. Beautiful pear trees between Columbus and Amsterdam. It has the virtue of being a street that is not a through street, so it's a little quieter than most streets. It feels very quiet. Nonetheless, there were birds in the trees that drove us completely crazy. And what you're seeing is a scene that, from about the time the music comes in on, is looped and looped so well that the performances were actually better than they were in real life, and they were great. That's really hard to do. You, I mean, they work take after take to get to that intimacy and that performance. And the fact that they can just walk onto a stage six months later and act that, and bring out that same performance is, is astounding. Joe? This is where the looping begins, actually, right here. And the only thing we'd fight about would be which video to run on a Saturday night. Well, who fights about that? Well, some people. Not us. We would never. If only. If only. That's a thing that was from the original movie and you'll see at this moment he touches her and then she touches herself and it's as close as they get before the end of the movie to to expressing that if only if only if only it was such an amazing moment when we shot it it was so unexpected and In the original, it was Christmas, and they were showing each other the gifts that they were going to give to their pen pals. But his full intention was to reveal himself. Someone asked me the other day, where was her purse at the end of the movie? <laughs> but I never carry a purse, so I never worry about where Meg's is. I figure she's got her key in her pocket and a $20 bill, and that's all she needs. This is the one of, one of the many things in New York that I think even New Yorkers don't know about, the beautiful flower garden at 91st and Riverside, which I used to walk past in the morning and think someday I'm going to put this in a movie. 
And we really did very little to it except probably added those two red flowers that you just saw in the foreground. But mostly it's that beautiful a garden. And it's a community garden. That's what's so great about it. That is Clovis, the dog. And the final Harry Nielsen, which is a cue we've been preparing for in the movie by, I hope, by putting little snatches of things that sound a little bit like Over the Rainbow at earlier moments when she's writing to him the right after the scene with the typewriter you hear a little teeny snatch of over the rainbow in that score piece and when she writes to say that they should meet there's just the tiniest bit of over the rainbow and even at the very beginning in the credit sequence when the planets are going by you hear a little teeny bit of doo 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 just a snatch just to prepare the audience for for this very familiar song that comes from a children's book, uh, The Wizard of Oz, or a movie made of the children's book. Now, a word on the dog. The dog was supposed to just <laughs> come in and jump, leap up in the air, at which point we would take him, animate him, do a few flips up into the air, and Nora had designed an end title sequence. But the dog had other things on his mind <laughs> and came in. And first actually grabbed Meg's sweater and started pulling her sweater, and then he switched over, as you will see, onto Tom. And I don't think I'm giving away too many secrets to say the reason he is pulling on Tom's jacket is that there's a dog treat (laughs) in the pocket of it. (laughs) There's his jump. There, he finally jumps. (laughs) But not quite in the way we meant And once again, we'll go from reality, this sky, into cyberspace, where we began. And a window will open onto the credits. Oh, one other thing. One other thing that that became... An interesting thing for us to deal with came from something that I read, which is a book by Ray Oldenburg, and I think it's called The Last Great Place or The Great Good Place or The Great Good Good Place. And it's a brilliant book about how essentially what people need is a third place. I first ran across a reference to this book in Howard Schultz's book, Howard Schultz being the man who built Starbucks into the thing it currently is. He had read this book, and what Oldenburg means when he says a third place is your home, your office, one, two, and then a third place you can go to that is neither of those. And Europe has always been full of third places. England has pubs, and France has cafes, and... Italy has trattoria, et cetera, espresso bars. But America, especially because of a variety of interesting things, had stopped having third places. 
as the cities got bigger and more dangerous, the, the idea was you'd move the third place out of the city. So all those horrible malls were built. And one of the things that's happened with Starbucks and various other places of that sort is that they've returned the third places to the city. Um, so that in the neighborhood where we live, it's just wall-to-wall places where more than one thing is possible. You can buy coffee and read a book. You can buy a book and buy coffee. And have a conversation. You can go to the gym and send your dry cleaning somewhere and have lunch and hang out. And in all of those places, of course, you can find love, mm-hmm. which is a thing that third places are very good at furnishing people with the way museums were supposed to be when we were growing up and we all went to museums hoping that someone would speak to us at them. But of course, the only people at the museums were other single women hoping that (laughs) someone would speak to them. Anyway, that was a thing that we were playing with in this because it's very hard for a little store like the one Meg runs in this movie to compete with what a big store can be, which is not just a big bookstore, but a place where you can find love. So thanks from Nora Ephron. Lauren Sheila Donner. And I hope you enjoyed this part of the show. We enjoyed telling it to you. Thank you for listening to Commentary. If you like the show, tell your friends. We think there's a lot to be learned from these recordings. Home video commentaries are insightful works that are becoming less and less accessible to viewers and should be preserved and shared. Commentary collects and presents classic and contemporary DVD commentaries in podcast form, so you can listen to them wherever and whenever you want. This podcast was created as a public service and is not monetized. Thank you for listening to the show.